0: Our gospel reading today is from uh, the 17th chapter of John. Uh, Technically, we start at verse 6, but I decided to start at verse 1, so uh, we'll begin there. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words that you gave to me, I have given to them. And they have received them and know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I'm asking on their behalf. I'm not asking on behalf of the world. But on behalf of those whom you gave me, because they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And I speak these things in the world so that you may have my joy made complete in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they did not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from the evil one. They do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, so that they may be sanctified in truth. The Word of God for the people of God. God. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and my Redeemer. So when it comes to uh, naming children, um, my family is not very creative uh... jessica can tell you this we've been talking about this a lot as we've thought about names for our, our child which will be born in november and for middle names for uh, the girls that we are trying to adopt uh... the lilies we tend to draw from this tiny little stockpile of names when you look at that side of my family tree uh... you have a john george and benjamin in some combination probably all piled together in every generation it's kind of a, this is my brother daryl and my other brother daryl situation um, <laughs> For the record, as we've thought about it, I, I think we're going to go with Elvis Presley Lily, sort of regardless. Uh, <laughs> that's not true. Um, <laughs> uh, I was thinking about this the other day as I recalled a story that my brother JB told at my grandfather's funeral. Uh, now, JB and my grandfather share one of these perennial Lily names. Uh, they're both actually a, a Jack. Um, we don't know the difference between. We don't know that Jack and John are the same name in the Lily family, by the way, so I have an Uncle Jack and an Uncle John. That's how we work. Uh, now, a little background about my grandfather. Uh, he's sort of the, the patriarch and steward of the tenant community uh, where I grew up, uh, where he grew up, uh, where my family lives to this day, where my grandfather farmed, where my father farmed. Uh, and, and T's, as we called him, and that's, that's a whole different family story for a different day. We like weird names in my family, if you haven't noticed, uh, nicknames at least. Um, he, he was actually born in the house that he lived in his entire life. Uh, you know, and for those of you on Facebook, you know how they forced us to that timeline thing, right, where you had to pick up one of those pictures? Uh, I picked, actually, the picture that I have up there is, is a picture of that house uh, and what it looked like uh, back in the 50s, what it looked like for when my father was growing up. Um, and it's just an illustration of, of that place and that our family you know, means a lot to us. It, it goes sort of to the core of, of our identity. Um, and so my brother, when he was even very, very young, was proud to bear the name Jack. Uh, so the story that my brother told at my grandfather's funeral, I actually hadn't heard up until that time. It goes something like this, and I'll probably mess up a few of the details. That's how family stories go, of course. That, that's okay if I don't get this totally right. Um, so he was out with my grandfather, uh, tending to some stuff on, on the land uh, one day. And they come across somebody who's broken down in their vehicle. Uh, so my grandfather, as he often did, went, went to help him. He was sort of figuring out the problem, helping him out. Uh, in the course of that, my uncle pulls up um, to start helping out. And uh, my uncle's name, by the way, is, is also Jack. He's actually Jack Wilson Miller Jr. Um, so, so they help the guy out and they get him fixed up and they're about to send him on his way. And the guy tries to, to you know pay my grandfather and he wouldn't accept it and he did this a lot and he would never accept payment for that sort of thing. I said, well, at least let me know, you know what, what y'all's names are. My grandfather said, well, I'm Jack Lilly. My uncle says, well, I'm Jack Lily," And then my, my little brother, who was really, really young at the time, stands up and he says, I'm Jack Lilly. <laughs> so we as Christians, we are in a very similar situation. We bear the name of Jesus, like it or not, for better or for worse. What our passage today from John tells us, in fact, is that this is exactly what Jesus wants. Our job and our identity is to be Christ for the world. Now, that can be hard for us to embrace for several reasons, being Christ in the world. Uh, The first reason for that is that there's a a strand of Christianity that cuts across conservative, liberal, Protestant, Catholic, cuts across all those lines. Um, And and this sort of idea is out there that that the main job of our faith is to equip us for eternal life. Um, and connected to that, you know, a lot of Christians see the world as, as a very bad place, um, a place that really, if it's important for anything, it's, it's for winning others to our faith um, and, and to keep the world sort of from polluting us, that we should remove our, ourselves from that. Now, I'm definitely for uh, evangelizing, for winning people to our faith. And there is much to be said for the ways that, that the world can pollute us. Um, but that's not actually what, what this passage of John would have us to understand today. Uh, We'll we'll explore that a little more in a second. The other reason, though, I think that this can be a hard identity for us to embrace is that most of us, probably all of us, have noticed that we seem pretty ill-equipped most days, many days, to bear Jesus' name. And we know our own weaknesses. We know our own sins. We all know the many, many ways that we have failed. Uh, And when I read this passage, that's really the, the first thing that comes to my mind. You know, in this passage, Jesus says that we don't belong to the world. Now, I don't know about you, but most days I feel, feel pretty well ensconced in the world. Um, Jesus says here also that, that he's come to make our joy complete. And, and while I consider myself a pretty happy person, a joyful person, I know that my joy is, is far from complete uh, at any given time. Uh, it seems to me that, that many Christians, perhaps most of you, perhaps all of you, you know, share those struggles. You know, perhaps you oftentimes feel overwhelmed by the world and even without joy. So, get, so given these problems, what, can, what sense can we make of this passage? What is, was Jesus trying to say here? How can it be that he would send us into the world? As a first step to understand, I think it would be helpful for us to take just a quick step back and look at the context of these words. Now, you'll notice that Jesus is praying. This is quite unusual. Now, we often see that Jesus prays. We see that all the time in, in Scripture. But we don't often see how he prays or what Jesus is praying, with just a few exceptions. But here in this dramatic moment of John's gospel, we have the words that Jesus is praying over his disciples. You see, this is no ordinary time. Jesus has gathered with the disciples near Passover. He's washed their feet. He's explained that he's about to die. He's given them a new commandment to love one another. And he's promised to sustain them with the Holy Spirit. And he's promised that soon their sorrow is going to turn and in rejoicing. They're utterly confused by this. They, they still don't quite understand what's going on. But in that moment, Jesus, who's been teaching all through John's gospel, replete with teaching, he stops teaching the, the disciples. He stops explaining things to them. And he starts praying for them. And in this extraordinary prayer, Jesus seems utterly confident that God will answer him these not-quite-there-yet disciples. Jesus says that he is sending them. And this isn't their work, it's God's. Jesus makes three statements here about the disciples' work, and you'll notice that each of them is predicated first on what God has done. In verse 11, he prays that the Father protect them so that they may be one. In verse 18, he prays that as God has sent him, so Jesus is sending them. In verse 19, he prays that as, as he has sanctified himself, so that these disciples might be sanctified in the truth. Uh, Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, if they feel up to it, that they may be one. Uh, He doesn't say, if their resume is good enough, I send them. Uh, He doesn't say, if they understand me perfectly, I sanctify them in the truth. No, the, the entirety of this mission is based on what God has already done and what Jesus has already done. Their roles, their identity here is predicated on God's work. And this fact points us to something else about this passage. This passage is not just about the individual spirituality of these disciples. Rather, it's about God's purposes for the entire world, the world into which they're being called. We see this in a couple of surprising ways, at least surprising given the way that that many of us tend to think about our faith. Now, the first of these ways we see in the word eternal life uh, that Jesus uses in the beginning part of this passage. In verse 1 through 3, it's good to return to it. Uh, Here's what It says, after Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So when we hear these three verses, and in particular this phrase eternal life, I think many of us suppose that what Jesus means here is that, that we'll go to heaven when we die if we believe in him. Um, now, that is not actually what this passage is saying. And I just note here that I'm not saying that we don't have a future with God after we die. We most certainly do. This passage is not about less than that. It's about more than that. It includes that. Uh, this phrase, eternal life, uh, sorry for the Greek lesson, but <laughs> the, the phrase eternal life is Ionios Zoe. Uh, now you know a little more Greek than you think you do. Uh, the second word here, "zoe," is where we get zoology. Anybody take a zoology class back in the day? A few of you, yeah. So, you know, zo- "zoe" is related to "zoon," which means like an animal. So it's all it relates to life. Life—that's easy. Now, the the first word here, um, "eternal," uh, is a perfectly good translation for our "ionios." Uh, but the problem is, is how we often hear what that word means. I think a lot of us think eternal means something sort of timeless and detached and not associated with the world. Um, but that's not actually what the word means. Uh, you'll notice that it sounds a lot like eon, right? Like eons and eons ago, ages. It relates to a discernible period of time. Um, In fact, that word is where we get those words. It's not about it's not timelessness. It's about life and an age to come. Uh, to understand this, we need to understand... Uh, what Jesus is saying about time. Um, Jews in that time, and, and we should understand this as well, You know, understood the time that we live in now uh, to be full, as, as we know as we look around, it's full of death and decay and sadness. Uh, though God didn't create the world in that way. That's, that's the world that, that we know. But they believed also. And you see this all through the Old Testament prophets, that they believed that God would come and he would do something with the world, that he would make it new, that he would fix all these problems, that we would have a world of justice and peace and goodness. And the idea here is that in Jesus, these two worlds have come to overlap, and we live right in the middle of them. Even though we look around and we see the badness in our world, we know that as we are already participating in the life that God will make in the entire world when Jesus returns. Now, if that analogy doesn't work for you, let me try this one out. Uh, if you picked out your Sunday paper this morning, you probably saw an advertisement for a weight loss something or a, you know regrow your hair something, uh, something like that. And what do they always have? They have before photos and after photos, right? Now, I'm stealing this joke, uh, but you know where are all the during photos? You don't see the during. Well, our job as Christians now, and this is what this passage wants us to understand, is that we are the during. Uh, we are a foretaste, and evidence, a, a, a sort of a, a beachhead of that future life. We're experiencing it right now. So if that analogy works for you, keep it. If it doesn't, don't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> the second term here that I think we often have a little trouble with is the, the term world. Now, as I've, I've suggested already, this is a very misunderstood word in the Christian vocabulary. Now, let me demonstrate this with a little experiment. Uh, in the chapter right after this one, Jesus is going to be before Pontius Pilate. Uh, Pilate's going to be questioning him He's going to ask him if he's a, a king And Jesus is going to tell him And you're going to fill in the blank here for me My kingdom is not You all said of this world But that's unfortunate Because <laughs> that's not actually what it says A lot of our, our, our translations of the Bible Have given it to us that way um, But actually the phrase is Et tu cosmi. It's It's from this world My kingdom is not from this world uh, the idea that we're supposed to get here is that God's kingdom is, you know, not from this world, but it is for this world. Uh, and unfortunately, a lot of us have forgotten that. Um, I'll call out one of my least favorite hymns. Uh, do, do you know, fortunately, we have really good hymns today. But if you heard that one, you know, this ain't my home, I'm just a-passing through, that's not right. <laughs> that's, uh, that's very unbiblical. Um, this world God loved. Remember back in, what does John 16, John 3.16 say? For God so the world. So yeah, for God so loved the world. The, the world is an object of God's love. It's not something that he's here to trash and discard. Uh, the agents of that love of God in the world, we know through Christ and we know in our lives. And fortunately, we have a good translation here for, with the NRSV. Um, you'll notice that in verse 16 it says, They do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. The Greek there is actually the same as the language that Jesus uses before Pilate. They are not from this world just as I am not from this world. Now, how can we make sense of that? I mean, what can Jesus mean? Obviously, we're born here. Everyone is born here, right? Anybody not born here? We're all born here. Uh, And we as Christians don't believe in the preexistence of souls before death. Um, Now, it's made clear that Jesus preexisted with God before he came here, but that's not true of us. So we can't be not from the world in the same sense in that way. What Jesus is referring to here is not our past, it's our future. We belong, we're empowered by, uh, we're metaphorically from God's future. Uh, and that's the same idea that's embedded in that idea eternal life. The life that we here have now represents what we will fully participate in when Jesus returns. So you see that, that both of these phrases, the emphasis is not on, on our qualifications, but the emphasis is on God's work and the world into which he's called us. I'd like to say just a a few things about what this life looks like. Well, it means that we bear God's word into the world. Now, we did a study of, of the Gospel of John last summer, and so I'm sure you'll remember all of this. In John, where's the first time that we see the word word? Yeah, the very first verse, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. The Word, we're supposed to understand, isn't just things that we should obey. It's not just Jesus' instruction. It's Jesus himself. So when this passage says that we have kept the Word, it doesn't mean that we've obeyed perfectly. I mean, we're going to see Peter betray Jesus in the very next passage. It doesn't doesn't mean that the disciples have been perfectly obedient yet. What he means is that they have been his people. They've been his disciples. They have kept him in the sense of of preserving him, of holding on to him, of being with him. And now they are going to take that word, to take that truth out into the world. Let's return to to the Pilate example for just a second. You'll probably remember this. Pilate asked Jesus in this exchange, So are you the king? Jesus' response to him is this. You say that I am a king, for this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And, John tells us, Pilate then asked Jesus, what is truth? We're supposed to understand there, just to recognize that the truth is, is standing right there in front of Pilate under arrest. When Jesus says that we... We'll know him in, in truth, that uh, we have his word. What he means is Jesus himself, uh, that they have been, these disciples have been wrapped up into his identity. My job, uh, friends, this is the job of every Christian. Uh, it's wonderful that we're celebrating a confirmation today, and, and especially because of that. I don't want to just leave this in the world of ideas. It's, it's about how we live our lives, uh, bearing this knowledge, bearing this, this life into the world, uh, that looks like things like serving the poor and, and reconciling one another, um, healing the broken. Uh, but I don't want you to think that it's just about sort of special projects that we undertake. It's also about the daily lives that we live that are empowered by God. Uh, because of what Christ has done, our daily lives have meaning because they represent Jesus' kingdom active in the world even now. And for our confirmants today, uh, what you have taken up. You've taken up responsibility. You've taken up a life doing this. Um, I, I want everyone to think about what what that would mean for your life. How does your daily life together represent God's kingdom? Uh, not what you do, sort of per se, but the, but the why behind it. Of course, the, the do is important. So for you students, and especially our, our confidants, uh, that might look like befriending that person at your school who's outcast, not just to be nice, uh, but because. You know that God welcomes all just as he has welcomed you. Uh, Perhaps you are that student who is an outcast. And and I think what this passage has to say to you today is that your life is meaningful. That no matter what anyone else might say, that you have been brought into life in Christ. And you have an identity and a a job and 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 a world to do. For those of you who are in business, it means treating your employees well, even if you might make more of a prophet doing otherwise. Not because you sort of get credit with that before God, but because you know that God's kingdom is a part of your work. For those of you who are teachers, and we have a lot of amazing teachers in this church, it means caring for those students that that others might not notice because you know that they have a place in God's future. For those of you who are in the military or in uh, a police force, you know that that should mean that your work is about bringing God's wise and just order into the world, and that should shape the way that you do your job. Uh, If you're, say, a mechanic or a construction person, uh, you should know that the way that you do your job relates to the fact that God is a creator, that he's bringing wise rule to the world, that he's making things, and so your acts of making things, your acts of repairing things matter. We could say the same for uh, those who work in the medical community. For those of you who are retired, it means bringing The wisdom of your life, uh, this life in the kingdom that you've known to uh, those who are who are younger than you. I hope you get the idea here. Wherever your place in life is, uh, what it means to to have Jesus' word is not doesn't just mean obedience. It means that, but it's bigger than that. It's about your purposes through God's purposes through the world enacted through you. Uh, So I'd like to leave you with a quote from one of my uh, favorite new theologians. He's not technically new. He's been dead a long time. He's newly known to me, so he's new to me. Uh, This guy named uh, Alexander Schmemann. Um, And uh, my whole semester at school was worth it just to read this one quote. Um, So here we are, and I'll leave you with this today. Here's what Schmemann says. We are at work in the world, and this work, in fact, any work, if analyzed in terms of the world in itself becomes meaningless futile irrelevant in every city in the world there is each morning a rush of clean and shaven people getting to work and every evening there is a rush of the same people now tired and dirty going in the opposite direction but long long ago a wise man looked at this rush its forms changed but not its meaninglessness and said vanity of vanities all is vanity What profit hath a man of all his labor, which he undertaketh under the sun? One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. There is nothing new under the sun. Here's an important part. This remains true for the fallen world. But, but, we as Christians have all too often forgotten that God has redeemed the world. For centuries we have preached to the hurrying people, your daily rush has no meaning, yet accept it, and you will be rewarded in another life by an eternal rest. But God revealed and offers us eternal life and not eternal rest. And God revealed this eternal life in the midst of time and of its rush as its secret meaning and goal. And thus he made time and our work in it the sacrament of the world to come. Here's my favorite part. There's no new thing under the sun, Ecclesiastes says. Yet every day, every minute, resounds now with the victorious affirmation from Jesus. Behold, I make all things new. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. May it be so by the power of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.